I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 23 through 26 today. The title of our message is Saving Righteousness Explained. Saving Righteousness Explained. As you find that in your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to stand as I read this passage. These are the most important words, church, that you will hear today. This is the Word of God. For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's the word of God for his church today. You may be seated. Saving righteousness explained. There was a young man driving through the country one day, and he spotted a pig. And that pig had three legs. Only three legs, I should say. And uh, he was a little curious, and so he decided to stop. He pulled in and he asked the farmer, he said, sir, would you tell me about this pig? It only has three legs. And the farmer said, I would love to tell you about this pig. This here is the best pig in all of the world. The young man said, well, why is that? He said, well, let me tell you. He said, one night, my wife and I woke to this pig squealing and squealing and squealing outside of our bedroom window. And so we jumped up and we ran outside to see what was going on. And when we got outside, we realized that our house was on fire. And inadvertently, we had left the door open. And before we knew it, that pig had run back inside. He had grabbed our little boy by his pajamas and drug him out of the house. And then, if that wasn't enough, he ran back in. He grabbed our little pig, uh, excuse me, our little, our little puppy. The pig grabbed the little puppy, grabbed him by the scruff of his neck, and drug him out of the house. And we were all saved from this fire. Yes, sir, that is the best pig in all of the world. And the young man said, well, that's an amazing story, but it doesn't explain why he only has three legs. To which the farmer replied, son, when a pig is that good, you can't eat him all at one time. Church, this passage in Romans is so loaded down with gospel truths. And by that word gospel, I mean goodness Good news. This passage is so loaded down that I find it difficult to preach it all at one time. You kind of just have to take it apart piece by piece. And uh, that's that's what I'm seeking to do uh, here over this uh, series of sermons. We could look at it all at one time, but I think this is one of those passages that warrants a much closer, in-depth look. Let me recap what we've discovered the past two weeks. First, in verses 19 through 20, if you'll glance your eyes there, we saw that saving righteousness is needed. Not because the law, um, uh, or because the law cannot save us. 
If the law could save us, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't need any other righteousness, but the law can't save us. We need a righteousness to come to us from outside of us because all we have inside of us is unrighteousness. And then last week, if you'll glance your eyes to verses 21 and 22, we saw that saving righteousness has been revealed. We need it, and it has been revealed. Paul said, but now... But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And then he went on to show that this righteousness by which we can be counted righteous is centered upon the person of Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes in Jesus will be justified. That word justified means to be counted righteous in God's sight. That's what we looked at last week. But then there's this question. There's this question kind of hanging in the air if we think rightly about who God is and the fact that last week we said that He would count sinners righteous through faith in Him. And it's this question, how is it that we can be counted righteous through faith in Jesus? If God is righteous, which He is, and if we are unrighteous, which we are, how can we stand before God as righteous simply through faith in Jesus? How can God remain just while at the same time justifying sinners? What is it about Jesus that allows God to save sinners from their sin through faith in Jesus. In verses 23 through 26, Paul's answers these, Paul answers these questions um, as we see saving righteousness explained. And it is explained incredibly. Let me give you a statement to summarize the answer to these questions which we find in these verses. That statement is this, the death of Jesus, church, The death of Jesus in our place is the means by which God can graciously count us righteous. The death of Jesus in our place is the means by which God can graciously count us righteous. All of that words in that statement are important. First, God is the one who counts us righteous. We will begin there today with me saying that and then we will end there. In just a little while, God is the one who counts us righteous. Everything we see in this passage which provides for our salvation takes place as a result of His initiative, of His work. Second, God counts us righteous by His grace as He graciously counts us righteous. We'll talk about that. And third, the death of Jesus in our place is the means by which God can do this. Listen, it's not the life of Jesus, though that was important. It's not a prayer of Jesus, though the prayers of Jesus are beautiful and important. It it was not even the resurrection of Jesus, though that was necessary once he had died. But the means by which the righteous God can count unrighteous people righteous is the death of Jesus in our place. So that's the passage in summary. Now let's delight. And I mean that word, let's delight, let's enjoy unpacking the details of this explanation of the greatest news in all the world. I want us to look at this explanation of saving righteousness in two main parts. Uh, The first one we're going to look at fairly briefly, and the second one we're going to look at in three parts underneath that. So two main parts. First one we're going to hit quickly, and then we'll spend the rest of our, our time on part number two, and I'll give you three statements under part number two. First main part is this. Sinners can be saved... Because God chooses to show grace. So this is the heart of the gospel, church. Sinners can be saved because God chooses to show grace. Those of us who've maybe grown up in the church and we've heard about salvation, maybe, we, maybe we're tempted not to wrestle with this question as much as uh, maybe someone else, but, but 
it should blow our mind that sinners can be saved. How in the world is that possible if God is righteous? It's because God chooses to show grace. Verse 23 very clearly tells us what Paul explained in detail in the first two and a half chapters of this letter, namely that every person in the world is a sinner before the holy God. He says in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, Paul wrote in chapter 2, verse 16, of a day when, he writes, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? A day is coming when God judges the secrets of mankind. And on that day, church, your self-invented standard of holiness is not the standard by which you will be judged. An earthly law book or an earthly set of moral standards is not the standard by which you will be judged. A balance weighing your good deeds and your bad deeds is not the standard by which you will be judged. The righteousness or unrighteousness of others is not the standard by which you will be judged. So what is the standard? It is the glory of God. It is the magnificent, powerful, knee-shaking, awe-inspiring, world-creating, Satan-smashing glory of God. That is the standard by which you and I will be judged one day. And it doesn't matter how good we might think we are compared to others in our world. We all fall far short of the glory of God. As one pastor put it, quote, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of it, that is, of God's glory, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. It's a great equalizer. Verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now here's why I emphasize this point. There is absolutely nothing you or I could ever do to make up the distance which separates us from God. That distance of which we have fallen short of His glory. We can try and try and try and we will never be able to make up that distance. Therefore, when verse 24 You can look there, when it speaks of sinful humans being justified, which again means counted right before God, counted righteous, the only way that will be possible is if God counts us righteous based on His choice to give it to us freely, not our choice to somehow earn it. That's exactly what we see to be the case here. Verse 24 says, And are justified, how? By His grace as a gift. Paul's overstating the case here. Grace is a gift. That's what grace is, but he making sure we understand by his grace as a gift. Grace is one of the most beautiful words in the Bible. Grace means unmerited favor. Grace means getting something good that you don't deserve. Friends, we deserve to suffer under the wrath of God for all of eternity, but God is willing God is willing to count us righteous in His sight and He is willing to give us that right standing with Him as a completely free gift. Later in the letter in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul will say this, for the wages of sin is death. That is wages, what we earn. We earn death. But, he'll say, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace. It is our only hope because we can never earn what we need. 
like a homeless beggar owing a trillion dollar debt, our only hope is that the one to whom we owe the debt will choose to no longer hold the debt against us. That that He will choose to forgive us that debt. That He will choose to show us grace. Grace is a choice. And it is God's choice, church. And praise God, He has chosen to show grace to sinners. It's the only way we can be saved. It's the only way that we can be counted righteous in God's sight. Sinners can be saved because God chooses to show sinners grace. But that only answers half of the question. It only answers half the question. Sinners who can't earn salvation can be saved Because God doesn't make them earn it, but because He's willing to give it to them as a free gift. But then, how in the world can God give us sinners a gift of righteousness if He is a good God? If God is righteous, how can He just hand us this pass? How can He just say, well, I know you've sinned and you've fallen far short of my glory, but I'm not going to hold it against you. If God is righteous, how can He do that? He cannot just ignore sin. Church, the Gospel is good news because there is a substance to the grace that God chooses to give. And that substance is the death of Jesus in our place. The second main truth I want to share with you today is this. God can show grace because... Jesus died in the place of sinners. God can show grace. He can look at a sinner who deserves rightfully to be condemned for all eternity and completely forgive us, completely free of charge to us. How? Because Jesus died in the place of sinners. It is the way in which He, the Holy God, can accept sinners into His presence, giving them eternal life. Several years ago, a a movie was released called National Treasure. The basic plot of the movie is that a bad guy wants to steal the Declaration of Independence because he thinks there's a treasure map on the back. Well, there's also a good guy. Every story's got to have a bad guy and a good guy. There's a good guy. His name's Ben. And uh, he decides he's going to steal the Declaration of Independence so the bad guy doesn't steal the Declaration of Independence uh, because he, he also believes that there's a treasure map on the back, but he thinks the treasure belongs to the people of the United States, not to a thief. And so his plan to, to, to save the day is to steal the Declaration of Independence before the bad guy steals the Declaration of Independence. Well, we'll fast forward to the end of the movie. The treasure has been found after the Declaration of Independence had been stolen by the good guy, Ben. Um, and, uh, and they found this treasure, and Ben is sitting next to an FBI agent. The FBI agent is thanking Ben for what he did and is asking uh, what do you want? Well, I mean, what, what, kind of, what do you want in return? I mean, you did do a good thing in, in protecting the treasure from this bad guy, so what do you want? Well, after asking to have his friends and family who helped him steal the Declaration of Independence cleared from all charges, he looks at the FBI agent and he says, I would really like to not go to prison. To which the FBI agent replies, Ben, someone has to go to prison. Now, I'm not going to tell you the end of the story, There's a couple more minutes left in the movie. I won't tell you the end. But I want you to think about those words. Someone has to go to prison. Why is that? Why why was that the case? 
Well, because a crime had been committed. If you didn't know, it's illegal to steal the Declaration of Independence. You shouldn't do that, okay? You'll get in trouble for it. That's a bad thing. A crime had been committed, so someone had to be punished. Friends, a crime has been committed, and we are all guilty of it. But this crime is not against a mere human or against a human government, but against the one true God of the universe. The crime is sin, and it must be punished. Now, if God is righteous, then He must punish those guilty of sin. But we just saw that He will show grace to sinners and declare them righteous in His sight, even though they are not. Then how can He let sinners go free and still remain a good and righteous God? Because someone has to be punished. Every sin must be punished. But by His grace, that someone is Jesus. Church, this is the good news. If you're here today and, and you, this is never registered in your mind, I want to tell you, I want, to, I want the privilege of telling you that Jesus has died in your place. This is the very heart of the Gospel news. Notice that verse 25 mentions the blood of Jesus. That's a reference to His death on the cross. It's not talking about He went and got His, fring, his finger pricked and then he put a couple drops of blood out. He didn't get his blood drawn and it was poured out. That reference to his blood is Jesus hanging on the cross with his blood being poured out for the remission of sins. Let me share with you three statements based on three action words we see in this passage. Three statements that go under this second main truth. And they're based on three action words that we see in this passage. We want these action words to drive our understanding of, of these verses. The first action word is the word redemption. The word redemption. Paul begins to explain how God can give us grace as a gift with these words in verse 24. Through, so he's answering this question, how can God give sinners a gift of grace? He says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, what does that mean? It means this, through his death, through his death, Jesus paid the price to deliver us from our sin. Through his death, Jesus paid the price to deliver us from our sin. The word redemption was used to describe the action of someone who paid the price in order to set a slave free. The slave had a price on his or her head. And if someone paid that price and then released that slave, then the slave had been redeemed. That's what redemption means. But please hear this truth about our sin. Apart from the saving grace of God, we are enslaved to our sin. We are shackled to our sin. Our relationship with our sin is a slave-master relationship. We may like to think that we are the masters of our sin, but the truth is that we are slaves to our sin. We are born into this world enslaved to our sin. And our sin has such a hold on us that there is nothing we can do to free ourselves from the clutches of sin. Perhaps today you know that you're a sinner, but you think that somehow you can beat the sin that is in your life. You think you can beat the addiction, the lying tongue, the harsh words, the complaining spirit, the bitter heart, or the arrogant attitude. You think that you're the master of your sin. But I want you to know that apart from the saving power of the Gospel, you and I are slaves to our sin. 
But I also want you to know this, that you don't have to stay enslaved to your sin. Friends, the good news of Jesus is that He has paid the price for our sin, and that price was death. The price for sin is death. It has always been death. Because this price has been paid by Jesus, we can be released from the chains of our sin through faith in Jesus Christ. So God is willing. He is willing to give you freedom from your sin, and He gives it as a free gift. There's no better news in all of the world than this. How can it be free? How can it be by grace? Because the redemption price for our sin has been paid, and it has been paid in full. Jesus didn't die for some of your sins. He died for all of your sins. That's how He can count you righteous through faith in Jesus without you working at all to earn your salvation. All the work has been finished. I love how Paul puts it in his letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Paul writes this, And you, he's talking to you, you and me, believers in Christ, you who once were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us, love this word, having forgiven us, all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. And here's the question. How can God just set aside our debt nailing it to the cross? That's how a righteous God can set aside the sin debt of sinners. He sets it aside not by ignoring it, but by nailing his son to the cross in our place. I like how Charles Wesley put it. He said he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Friend, if you have not believed in Jesus for salvation, then you are a slave to sin, but you don't have to stay chained to the sin which will lead to your eternal death because through the death of Jesus, the price for your sin has been paid and you can be delivered. First action word is the word redemption. Second action word in this passage is the word, get ready for it, it's a doozy, you ready? Propitiation. 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 If your translation doesn't use the word propitiation, I'll spell it for you. P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. I have to look at it because I don't think I can spell that just in my mind. Propitiation, that is a mouthful. But listen, we don't want to be scared of it. Nor do we want to ignore it. Nor do we want to water it down. It is the word God inspired Paul to write. It's a particular Greek word in the Greek New Testament here. We'll talk about it. And so let's embrace it. Let's delight in it. Let's try to understand it first. Paul continues building his case for how God can give unrighteous people a gift, a free gift of righteousness. He says in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, next week we're going to focus on that phrase, to be received by faith. Three times in this passage we see the word faith. We're going to focus on that word faith a lot next week. So if you think I'm kind of skipping over it a little bit, I kind of am. But it's because we're going to, we're going to get there next week. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Here's your second statement concerning the death of Jesus. Through His death, 
through his death, Jesus satisfied God's wrath toward our sin. Through his death, Jesus satisfied God's wrath toward our sin. If you're wanting a definition of propitiation, that is it. Wrath being satisfied by a substitute. That's what the word propitiation means. Wrath being satisfied by a substitute. So, I'm not sure that really helps a whole lot. What do you mean by by wrath being satisfied by a substitute? Well, wrath, wrath is God's righteous anger and punishment towards sin. It's His righteous anger and punishment towards sin. And by satisfy, I mean that God's righteous anger and punishment towards sin has been poured out such that He is no longer reserving punishment for the sinner. It's been satisfied. And then by substitute, I mean simply someone taking the wrath in the place of someone who deserves it. Wrath being satisfied by a substitute. Look at verse 25. It says, of Jesus, talking about Jesus, whom God put forward. So he's putting forward Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. As a satisfaction of his wrath, though Jesus had done no sin, committed no sin. So Jesus is a substitute, a substitute satisfaction, the wrath of God. To fully understand this word propitiation, we need to do what Paul expected his original readers to do. To go back to the Old Testament, to the Jewish Scriptures. We've got to go back to the law. That revelation of God under which we stand condemned, and yet that same revelation which set the stage for Jesus to come as our Savior. You see, according to the Jewish law, God would forgive sin only through the death of an innocent one in place of the guilty. And so, He instituted the sacrificial system along with a place where that sacrifice was to be made. Let's talk about the sacrifice for just a moment. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, this Day of Atonement, the high priest there in Israel would sacrifice first a bull for his own sin, and then he would offer two goats for the sin of the people of Israel. The first goat he would kill as payment for sin, because remember, the payment of sin is death. And that goat's blood would be poured out for the forgiveness of sins of the Israelites. The second goat would be set free in the wilderness to symbolize the removal of sins or the sending away of sins as the result of the sacrifice that God would remember them against the Israelites no more. So that's a summary of that most important sacrifice in the life of the nation of Israel. But what about the place? See, the sacrifice was to be made in this place called the tabernacle. That then when it became a permanent structure, it was called the temple. And inside the tabernacle was an inner room called the holy place. And in the holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant was something called the mercy seat. It was a mercy seat. And this mercy seat was overshadowed. you got a picture. It was overshadowed by these two cherubim, which were statues representing actual cherubim. Cherubim, if you're wondering what they are, they're kind of like angels. They're these heavenly beings which exist to guard the holiness of God. And it was there upon the mercy seat, top of the Ark of the Covenant, where the, where the cherubim were guarding the holiness of God. It was there upon the mercy seat where God's presence would appear and He would meet with sinful humans, something that a righteous God shouldn't do. He shouldn't meet with sinful humans, and it was there that He would meet with them, namely one of those humans, the high priest, because He was the only one who was allowed to go in. He was only allowed to go in once a year. But I'm leaving out the connecting detail. Leviticus 16 tells us that the high priest 
couldn't just walk in and meet with God. That high priest had to take some of the blood of that sacrifice. As he walked into that most holy place, there the mercy seat, where God was going to meet, he had to take the blood and he had to sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Why did he have to do that? What does that mean? Well, it means that God would only allow sinners who fall short of His glory to draw near to Him and remain alive in His presence, in the presence of His glory, if they entered through the means of a blood sacrifice. God would accept the blood sacrifice as a substitute and would show mercy, hence the mercy seat, show mercy to the sinner. But only if blood was shed, only if a substitute was made. If the sacrifice was not made and the blood was not sprinkled on the mercy seat, then the wrath of God would not have been satisfied by a substitute and the priest would bear the wrath, which means the priest would drop dead. He would be killed in the presence of a holy God because he, the priest, was a sinner. Now, if you read about this Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, which you should, Leviticus chapter 16, I would encourage you to go and read that maybe multiple times this week. When you go and read that, you will most likely not see the word propitiation in your English translation. You won't. Which might lead you to say, Zach, why in the world are you going to Leviticus 16 and talking about this mercy seat when, and propitiation? When I, won't, I won't even see the word propitiation in Leviticus chapter 16. Put on your thinking caps for about 60 seconds or maybe 120 seconds, okay? One or two minutes. Put on your thinking caps. Here's the reason we go there. You ready? You, you're not going to see the word propitiation, but you will see this phrase, mercy seat. And it's going to be used seven times in Leviticus chapter 16. Now remember the mercy seat where God would meet with sinners and accept them as if they were righteous even though they were not if a substitute had been killed and blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. That word translated mercy seat in the English, in our English translations, is a Hebrew word that means a place of propitiation. And many, many years ago, when the Old Testament, originally written in Hebrew, was translated into Greek, which is what the Apostle Paul would have used a lot The readers, if they had copies of the Old Testament, these readers would have been reading it in the Greek. There's this word, this Greek word, hilasterion. And guess what? It's used seven times in Leviticus 16 in the Greek translation of that passage. Word translated mercy seat. The Greek word hilasterion. Leviticus 16 says to sprinkle the blood on the hilasterion. Sprinkle the blood on the hilasterion. If you don't sprinkle the blood on the hilasterion, the priest is going to die for his sins. But if you sprinkle the blood of a substitute sacrifice on the hilasterion, then your sins will be forgiven. That same Greek word is used only two times in the New Testament. Once it is used in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, when the writer of Hebrews is describing the contents of the Jewish tabernacle. Guess how it's translated in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5? Mercy seat, contents of the tabernacle. You probably guessed the other time that it's used in the New Testament. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Whom God put forward 
as a hilasterion. By his blood to be received by faith. Church, when we put all of this together, it means that God's righteous wrath toward our sin has been completely absorbed by Jesus on the cross with the result that God is no longer angry towards us and is no longer reserving punishment for us if we believe in Jesus. Don't get me wrong. God is angry with your sin and my sin. He's angry with us when we stand before Him as sinners, but He is able to show us grace, grace that leads to our justification in His sight because He has satisfied His wrath through Jesus. And what did it take for God's wrath to be satisfied? It took the blood of Jesus. It took Jesus dying upon the altar of the cross. And it's His blood that is sprinkled upon that heavenly mercy seat. Church, through the death of Jesus, the blood of a substitute sacrifice, which is far better than any animal because this blood is the blood of a perfect human. This blood has been put forward so that the wrath of God will be satisfied and every sinner who believes in Jesus can enter the presence of God and not die but live and will live forever. Friends, that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest news in all the world. As we said last week, the Old Testament was paving the way for the coming Messiah. God knew. You think God didn't know what He was doing all along? You think He didn't know what He was doing when He inspired Moses to, to write Leviticus chapter 16? When He gave the command to sprinkle blood on this thing called the mercy seat and several thousand years later, the Apostle Paul was going to write that Jesus is that mercy seat. He is that propitiation for our sins. It's His blood. Now last week I told you that believing Jesus is the only way God has revealed His saving righteousness is not a very popular, popular belief. But guess what? I'm going to say the same thing about this aspect of salvation. You see, many people who call themselves Christians and many groups of these people who call themselves churches do not like to talk about or sing about or preach about the propitiatory aspect of the death of Christ because it means you have to talk about God's wrath. And they don't like to talk about God's wrath because then you have to talk about sin. And you have to talk about the blood of Jesus being poured out. And that's just too messy. But unfortunately for them, their desire to not talk about the wrath of God means they miss out. They miss out on talking about and singing about and preaching about and believing in and delighting in the heart of the heart of the Gospel of Jesus. Jesus pouring His blood out in our place. We live in a sanitation-loving world, or at least society. We do. We've got bathroom sanitizer and hand sanitizer and sanitizing wipes and sanitizing spray and sanitizing stations. And now hear me, that's all well and good when it comes to trying to stay physically healthy. But when it comes to being spiritually healthy, we must dive headlong into the blood of Jesus Christ. We must acknowledge the filth of our sin and the righteous wrath of God. We must see and believe in and celebrate with broken hearts made new that bloody cross on that hill called Golgotha as the Son of God and Son of Man poured out His blood in death so that you and I can meet with God forever at this mercy seat of heaven. A mercy seat sprinkled with the blood of the only sinless man. The only Son of God. 
Church, we can sanitize all we want, but may we never, ever sanitize the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we speak about the cross and sing about the cross, immerse ourselves in the cross, depend upon the cross, never ever move past the cross, and never cease proclaiming this cross upon which Jesus died, proclaiming this cross to the world. The blood of Christ is our only hope. And this is how God is able to give us a free gift, a a grace gift of righteousness. Jesus has paid the price and God's wrath has been satisfied. So through His death, Jesus paid the price to deliver us from our sins. And through His death, Jesus satisfied God's wrath toward our sin. And let me give you this last statement. And really, it's a summary statement. I don't have to spend a lot of time here because we've already really said where, where Paul is going to. He's already given this explanation Through his death, Jesus displayed God's righteousness in forgiving sin. I told you there were three action words. The first was redemption. The second word was propitiation. And the third is the word. And it might be translated different ways in your your, uh, copy of God's word. It can be translated show or demonstrate or declare. It was to show the righteousness of God, to demonstrate the righteousness of God, to declare the righteousness of God. Those are all great translations of that Greek word there. We see this word two times, once in verse 25 and once in verse 26. What is being shown? What is being demonstrated? What is being declared through the death of Jesus in our place? It is the righteousness of God. Do you remember the question that we posed at the beginning that led to us wanting to unpack this passage? How can can God, who is righteous, remain righteous while declaring unrighteous sinners righteous? How can God remain just while justifying sinners? We've seen the answer is the death of Jesus in our place. When Jesus died, God was displaying His righteousness in forgiving sin. He wasn't just saying, I'm righteous, which means all sinners will be condemned. He was declaring, I am righteous and sinners can be saved. If God forgave sin by ignoring sin, He would not be just. If God punished us for our sin in order to remain just, we would not be saved. The good news is that when Jesus died on the cross, God was displaying His righteousness, His justice, while at the same time justifying sinners. I want to read the second part of verse 25 and then verse 26. And like I said, we're going to save some of this for next week, so I'm going to skip a couple of phrases. Not because they're not important, but we just can't do this all at one time, right? Um, uh, let, let Let me read verse 25 and 26. Highlighting the big picture here. This... This, the text says, that is the death of Jesus in our place, was to show God's righteousness. Verse 26 says, it, speaking of the death of Jesus in our place, was to show His righteousness so that He might be just and the justifier. This is the good news. This is the greatest news. So that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do we see it? Do we see the centrality of the cross of Christ? The way a righteous God can declare unrighteous people righteous without violating His own righteousness is by sacrificing His Son in our place. And that is exactly what He has done. God justly punished sin and He graciously punished His Son instead of you and me. 
as Jesus was crying out in agony upon the cross, God the Father was shouting to the world, I am righteously counting sinners righteous, even though it is costing my Son His life. Oh sinner, how, how can you remain in your sin when the God who made you loves you that much. Don't stay enslaved to your sin. Don't try to satisfy this wrath on your own. You can't do it unless you die and go to hell and experience God's wrath for all of eternity. But you don't have to. You can believe in Jesus and be saved. And won't you do that? You never have. As we close, I want to highlight once more God's grace in this all. I told you we're going to start here and we're going to end here. This grace that God is the one who does this work. It's His his saving work. He's the one who does it. I I can't close without just highlighting this phrase. Verse 25, look at this. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Whom God put forward. Friends, God has put forward His own Son as a sacrifice so that you would receive His gift of salvation and be saved. God did it. He did it for you. He did it for me. He did it while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, Romans 5.8 says. He put Him forward. The prophet Isaiah put it this way, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He's talking about His Son. He has put Him to grief. The Apostle Peter put it this way, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of, not us, of God. The Apostle Paul is putting it this way, God has done the work of justification through the death of Jesus. It is a free gift, so receive it by placing your faith in Jesus. Church, who else is like Jesus? No one. Who else has done what Jesus has done? The answer clearly is no one. Sinners can be saved because God chooses to show grace, and God can show grace because Jesus died in the place of sinners. That is is saving righteousness explained according to God's Word. It is His Word for us today. Will we receive it? If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, please do so. Please ask the Lord to forgive you, not because you deserve it, but because Jesus has paid the price for your sin. Tell God you're sorry and tell Him that you believe that Jesus paid it all for you, and you want to be saved from your sin because of what Jesus did on the cross. You can be saved today. Church, those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, may we join our voices with the voices of heaven who according to Revelation 5 are saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Church, may we glory in the cross. May we praise the name of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, would you work in our hearts according to your will?
according to your way, according to your glory. Father, may we respond by reflecting upon the agony and at the same time the beauty of the cross. Father, may we respond by declaring the truths of the Gospel that Jesus came, that He died, that He rose again, and that He sets us free for all of eternity. No more guilt, no more shame hanging over us. And Father, may we respond by joyfully exalting the name of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.